Hello, and welcome to Biohacking with Brittany. Thank you for joining me for another episode today. If this is your first time listening, this is a place where we talk about health and wellness and all of those good things and everything in between. So I started this podcast a few years ago. It's been slowly growing in tandem, you know, with my business and social media. And we are now in the top 1.5% of podcasts across the globe, which is exciting and means big things to come. Hoping to crack 1% by the end of this year, but that is quite a difficult thing to do. So we will see. I'm happy with 1.5%. I think I was at 2% in the fall. So the, the show is definitely growing and it's growing because of people like you listening and downloading and supporting it. Today's episode is all about nutrition. So this is such a massive topic. I was really concerned about how I was going to break this down, how I was going to explain it, what we were going to talk about. And I thought, what would be the most valuable to you that doesn't sound like a lecture like a food and science class or like reading a textbook type of idea. So instead of focusing on, you know, digestion and the different organs and, you know, the microbiome and things like that and how that all kind of works, we're going to kind of actually look at the food components instead. I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions out there about food, which ones are healthy, which ones you're supposed to avoid especially when it comes to types of fat, types of carbohydrates. We're going to look at all of that. We're going to just kind of go through all of these different topics and look at what's ideal, like what's optimal and what isn't. But not just the macronutrients like carbohydrates, fat, and protein. We're going to look at specific food groups as well. So we're going to do, you know, of course, like the vegetables, the fruits, the nuts, the seeds, all of that type of thing. We're also going to do like salt and sugar and coffee and tea and alcohol and just give you a very general understanding of what the research has shown is actually the most healthy for you. And then you can do with whatever, with that information, what you will. You can make decisions. You can make different choices. You can implement a different way of eating, a different diet. It is totally up to you. But I think this is a very good overview for people who have never studied nutrition or are looking to refresh what they know and are kind of just looking for a good overview that includes all of the different food groups. I could do a whole episode on how food is actually digested in the body, but I feel like, again, I don't want this to be a lecture type of vibe. There are other podcasts that can do that. And I, I just don't know also what you would get from that other than maybe some small takeaways here and there. Whereas I feel like this is so much more tangible. From this, you can take notes or you can save this episode and refer back to it later. You know, when you're grocery shopping, maybe now you think about like the type of salt that you're going to buy because you understand which ones are the best and which ones are the worst. I think I need a refresher like this as well sometimes, especially when I grocery shop or make food, or make decisions when I'm out at restaurants. So it's a really good for reminder for me <laughs> as well. Even though I am a nutritionist and I work with clients, 
it's still helpful to kind of go through all of it again. Before we dive into any of this, shout out to Buy Optimizers. Thank you guys so much for supporting them. I really do appreciate that. They are easily one of my favorite brands that I work with, and they make very good digestive enzymes. Speaking of digestion, so I take their digestive enzymes. My husband does as well. He actually is in California right now. He flew out for this weekend for work. And I said to him this morning before he left, I was like, did you pack your digestive enzymes? Because I know when I'm not around (laughs) and when you're with the people that you work with out at, at restaurants and stuff like that, like you tend to be influenced to eat food that is not as healthy, not as nutrient dense, is a little greasier. So we really need something to kind of help break down that food. And that's where digestive enzymes come into play. They These are basically little cofactors that help digest your food once it enters your stomach or enters, enters your di- digestive system. So it eases the burden of digestion. And so if you're dealing with bloating, gas, irregular bowel movements, constipation, you know, diarrhea, anything like that, Digestive enzymes really actually help reduce all of that. And then on top of that, if you're eating inflammatory foods like gluten, dairy for some people, a ton of sugar, processed food, processed carbs, it helps break that down and reduce the inflammation response from that food. So it's very, very handy to have in your back pocket. I travel with it. I have one a bottle in my car, at home, everywhere. So it very much goes hand in hand with this episode today. They also have magnesium, which is very powerful. I love their magnesium. I took some last night for my sleep and they have a bunch of other products as well. So check out Bioptimizers. The biggest discount you can get with them is with my discount code biohackingbrittany. It's on my website and in the show notes. That will give you the most that you can get off regardless of like whatever it might say on their website. So please use that. And by optimizers is spelled B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S by optimizers. And yeah, that's about it. So let's dive into nutrition, what you want to be avoiding, what you want to be taking and eating and all that good stuff. All right. So we are going to start with salt. We are going to start with spices. So let's dive into this. So salt is one of the most, I don't know, most important things that we can add to our diet. It is necessary for multiple reasons. And we're not necessarily going to get into the health benefits of it, but we are going to get into why we actually need it. So there's table salt and then there's other different types of salt, but high quality salt enhances flavors, preserves food, and maintains the fluid balance of the body. Sodium is essential to the body for carrying nerve impulses, maintaining muscle function, and regulating fluid balance and blood pressure. Chloride is needed for digestion and respiration. There's a lot of natural salts out there. So natural salts are produced either by evaporating seawater or mining ancient sea sediments. So you should ideally favor coarse salt crystals and grind them at home using a salt mill. I'll actually link the one that I use in my show notes. It's a really great one that that grinds it very nicely. And consider the the possible risk of heavy metals when you're looking at your salt. And this actually includes nickel. And plastic particles from poor quality salt mills containing contaminating the salt. 
The quality of the salt also depends on the cleanliness of the sea and the area in which the salt is handled. So you can see, even with something as simple as salt, there's so much actually that goes into it. And there's so many factors we actually need to consider in order to get the most nutrients and minerals out of salt itself. Several countries add iodine to table salt to address the iodine deficiency problem. However, salt is not the best source of iodine. For example, one teaspoon of kelp provides as much iodine as one pound of iodine-enriched sea salt. That kind of makes sense. So what do we want to actually favor and what do we want to avoid when it comes to salt? You want to favor purity-tested unrefined sea salts, mineral salts, pink salts sold under various names. So we see this with like Himalayan salt, rose salt, rock salt, and black salts and herbamir seasoning and rare specialty salts as well. So like river salt or bamboo salt. There's so many salts actually, it's, it's pretty crazy. And you want to avoid common refined salt. You definitely want to avoid table salt. You want to avoid seasoned salt, things with like MSG in them, because these are just not nutrient dense when it comes to how many minerals are in them. I personally use either Himalayan salt or gray Celtic sea salt. These two have the highest amount of different minerals in them aside from sodium. So things like chloride or magnesium. And that's really important. We don't want something like table salt, which is majority sodium. We do want something that is more nutrient dense. A tip, one tip you can actually look for for this is that you can mix different types of salt together, such as sea salt, rose salt, and black salt, and different herbs if you want. This obviously increases the aromas of it and the nutrient density. All right, let's dive into sugar. Sugar is definitely a bit more complicated than salt. And sugar is very confusing on the market today. At least I feel this and see this a lot. So here are a couple alarming statistics. So in the United States, the average person consumes more than 126 grams of sugar per day. Per day. Oh. I can't even with that. That is insane. Oh my gosh. Okay. That is more than twice the recommendation for daily intake by the World Health Organization. Around 70, 70 to 80% of the sugar is called, is so-called hidden sugar. It is plentiful in many processed foods such as yogurt, juice, soda, cold cuts, pizza, soy sauce, mayonnaise, and other convenience foods. Oy. So... I mean, an obvious tip for this is you really want to be looking at the ingredients of the food that you buy. When you are buying something like yogurt is such a great example for this. What type of yogurt are you buying? Are you buying vanilla? And so you think, oh, it's like pretty plain. There's probably not much added to it. It's probably just, it's probably just vanilla essence with, you know, yogurt, right? Like there's probably only two ingredients in there. It's, it's good to go. But you actually turn over that vanilla yogurt and you read 10 different ingredients and there's multiple sugars in there and it's very, very sweet. So for me, for example, what I do is I buy unsweetened plain yogurt and I always flip it over and I read the ingredients and it typically should say like grass-fed organic, if you can find it, grass-fed organic cow yogurt, or maybe you do goat or sheep or something else. 
And then uh, bacteria cultures. So they add different types of bacteria to it in order to preserve it for longer. And that's kind of all that should be in your yogurt. There shouldn't be anything else. Even though it might be, they might, you know, flavor it with, like I said, vanilla or like a, a fruit. So you think it's just like fruit and this yogurt, it's still actually filled with added sugars. It's not just the fruit, unfortunately. So if you want to have yogurt, buy the plain and sweetened one and add the fruit yourself. You are miles ahead if you choose to do something like that. Do you know if you're getting enough magnesium? Because four out of five Americans aren't. And that's a big problem because magnesium is involved in more than 300 biochemical reactions in your body. Today, I want to talk to you about the most common signs to look for that could indicate you're magnesium deficient. Listen carefully to the end because there's a special offer happening and this could be exactly what you need. Okay, here we go. Are you irritable or anxious? Do you struggle with insomnia? Do you experience muscle cramps or twitches? Do you have high blood pressure? Are you sometimes constipated? There are dozens of symptoms of magnesium deficiency. So these are just a few of the most common ones. Now, here's what most people don't know. Taking just any magnesium supplement won't solve your problem because most supplements use the cheapest kinds that your body can't use or absorb. That's why I exclusively recommend Magnesium Breakthrough. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually use and absorb. All Bioptimizer supplements are best in class, which is why I use them. If for some reason you feel differently, you can get a full refund, no questions asked. They are so confident that they offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. Just go to bioptimizers.com slash biohackingbritney. In addition to the discount you get by using my promo code biohackingbritney, you get gifts with your purchase. That's right. You actually get gifts up to two travel size bottles of magnesium breakthrough. So act fast. This is a limited time offer. You can go to bioptimizers.com slash biohackingbritney. Use my code. It's linked to my show notes on my website and start taking your magnesium today. So compared to cane sugar, white refined sugar contains no trace elements or minerals. White refined sugar can interfere with the absorption of calcium, magnesium, zinc, and iron. It also consumes the body's supplies of trace elements and minerals as sugar metabolism requires several different trace minerals. This is pretty scary. Honestly, these statistics are pretty scary. The excessive use of white sugar is associated with numerous metabolic disorders such as type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome, disrupted fat metabolism and systemic inflammation, cardiovascular diseases, and Alzheimer's disease. In addition, sugar and fructose strain the liver. What is worse is that studies have found that sugar causes physical dependence, which is very, very scary as well. So I recommend replacing any white sugar with alternatives that contain trace elements and avoiding sources of hidden sugar, such as flavored yogurt, soda, juice, convenient foods. So just be thoughtful about this. Okay. So let's kind of get into what you want to favor now and maybe what you want to avoid. So a big one that I definitely want to talk about is honey. So when it comes to honey, you can favor unheated and unfiltered. 
unprocessed local honey produced in an unpolluted area and collected from a single farm. Varietal honey, for example, buckwheat, manuka, and the darker the color, the better. When I lived in New Zealand, I had manuka honey and it was so good. It was so delicious. Mind you, it's very, very pricey, but it was fantastic. And so now when I buy honey, I don't really buy manuka, but I buy raw, raw, unprocessed or unpasteurized, unheated, all kind of means the same thing, honey. And it is very dark in color. And it's also not very liquidy. It's actually more hard at room temperature. And that's how you know that it's unprocessed. So a really good company for this is Beekeepers Naturals. I will link it in the show notes. I actually am drinking tea with honey in it right now. And it's the it's the honey from them. All right, crystallized sugars. So you want to favor coconut sugar. Coconut sugar is fantastic for baking, actually. And whole cane sugar, so unrefined and processed as, as little as possible. Often sold under unusual names, such as Indian, Kokotu sugar. And now what to avoid? There are so many sugars to avoid. <laughs> Bleached sugar, brown sugar. Brown sugar is such a lie. It, it just seems like they're just trying to make you think it's healthier because it's not white, That's which is just not true. Brown sugar is partially bleached raw cane sugar, also sold under other names as well, like molasses sugar, because the way that you actually make brown sugar is you just take molasses and you add it to white sugar. That's literally what brown sugar is. Baking sugar, and you want to avoid fructose. When it comes to more sugar alcohols and high-intensity sugars or sweeteners, you can favor something like birch-based xylitol. I have used this in baking as well. A caution for xylitol is that it is toxic for dogs and pets. So just be careful if you have your little fur ball running around, if any spills on the floor, anything like that, like it can cause issues with your with your pets. And then you can do green stevia. So green, because this is the leaves of the whole plant, it's more of a whole food than just buying the regular stevia. You want to avoid GMO xylitol, okay? Erythritol, sorbitol, white stevia, aspartame, and I guess that's kind of like it for that. Then we can also talk about syrups. So I think a lot of people kind of know you want to choose something like maple syrup. I'm in Canada, so we have really great maple syrup here. Coconut syrup, yacon syrup, spruce tip syrup. Those are all natural foods that are going to be okay. Mind you, these were all going to still spike your blood sugar. That's not necessarily what we're talking about today. It's just of like, what is the better option out of the two? For syrups, you want to avoid fructose glucose syrup, otherwise known as corn syrup, agave syrup, sugar syrup, and flavored syrups. So again, in my house, we have maple syrup, coconut sugar, xylitol. I also have maple sugar, which is also great for baking. And then I have, I don't use stevia. I don't really like stevia too much. And I think that's it. Oh, and then honey. That's kind of the, the ones that I go through. Other things that you can use as needed is like monk fruit, lucuma, prickly pear, inulin, and licorice root. All right, let's move on to spices. I feel like there's so many notes in this. Like, please take notes or save this episode. <laughs> Maybe I need to make this into a blog post on all of the things you should favor and avoid or just save this episode to come back to. 
All right, spices. So spices are used to add flavor and preserve food. Spices can be strongly flavored or aromatic plant parts, components extracted from plants or minerals. Many spices and herbs have both health-promoting and illness-preventing qualities. Several spices also stimulate the function of the digestive system. So flavor and scent are sourced from the oxidizing and vaporizing plant parts. Therefore, ground spices gradually lose their flavor and any medicinal effects. Whole spices keep for approximately two years, whereas ground spices keep for about six months or so. However, the flavor may suffer sooner. Okay, so what do you want to favor? You want to favor wild vegetables and wild spices, fresh ginger and turmeric. These are really, really great in tea. Garlic and onions. I mean, garlic and onions at this point arguably should always be in your pantry unless you're someone who is like cautious about oxalates and things like that. Chili, cayenne, and black pepper, a Ceylon cinnamon, cardamom, caraway, fennel, and bay leaves, rosemary, oregano, thyme, dill, tarragon, coriander, mint, basil, parsley, sage. Like those are all kind of the basic ones. Maintaining your own miniature herb garden near a window or on a balcony. This is a beautiful idea. I really want to do this when we move into our new house is I'm going to be building a herb garden and slash vegetable garden. Because obviously, fresh herbs are much healthier than the dried ones that lose their flavor and health-promoting effects over time. So creating some sort of herb garden is a great way to kind of, you know, avoid that. And try to purchase organic whole spices, not ground when possible. I kind of struggle with this. Sometimes I'm able to find organic, sometimes I'm not. but. I don't know. I feel like if I really wanted to, I could go to like Whole Foods and find them. It's just, it's just more of like having access to that kind of store. You want to avoid highly aerated spices, expired spice shakers that have been constantly exposed to light, heat, and moisture. Many spices such as peppers can easily go moldy if handled directly over the countertop or the cooktop. This is such a good hack. I learned this. I don't even know when I learned this a couple of years ago. If your spices are close to where you're cooking, you're doing it wrong, okay? Please put them somewhere else in your kitchen, put them in a cabinet, get a shelf or a drawer that is a spice organizer. You know, there's so many different ways you can do it now, a spice rack. Please keep it away from your stove and your oven because it oxidates, it oxidizes the spices so much faster. And so they're really, really not as potent as they once were, and you're not getting as much benefit. Right now, I'm <laughs> I'm in an apartment, so we don't have a lot of space. So it's in this like little drawer that we have, you know, at the bottom, very far from where we cook. And I always put my spices away after. They are not on the countertop. I don't leave like the salt and pepper out. No, it's not nothing like that. And then in our new house, it'll actually even be further away for that very reason. Just a side note, this also applies to your supplements. If you keep your supplement rack or stack or box or whatever it is that you keep all your supplements in close to where you're cooking, you're doing it wrong. Please move it away from any type of heat source so that they don't oxidize faster and they stay potent for you. All right, let's dive into animal products. This is not the time for me to tell you to be vegan or not vegan. 
This is, again, we're just going through all of the different types of food and what's typically healthy and what's not healthy. Also, I eat meat and I, so I personally cannot recommend you not eat meat, but you make whatever choice that you want to make. So, you know, kind of along the lines of this, this is such a diverse, divisive topic. You know, some people are just so against it for the environment. Some people are so for it for their health. It's kind of all over the place, really, when when we look at it. But I think what really matters is like, if you are going to eat meat, what is the type of meat that you're eating? What is the quality like? And what are the nutrients that you're actually getting from this animal protein or this animal meat? So unbalanced animal consumption. So for instance, only favoring muscle meat, which is a lot of what happens in North America, can cause an amino acid imbalance in the body. So just to back up for a second there, protein is is made out of amino acids. And so a whole protein is made up of all of the different amino acids that are needed for that. So animal products are like complete proteins. My gosh, I'm going back to my nutrition 101 here. Animal Animal proteins are complete proteins, which means that they have, I think it's all 11 amino acids in them. Whereas plant proteins are not complete proteins, most of them little asterisks there, most of them. And so you actually need to combine them to get all of the different amino acids in them. Muscle tissue is rich in methionine, the excessive consumption of which has been found in animal tests to increase oxidative stress and to accelerate aging. Muscle tissue is scant in glycine and an essential amino acid that is plentiful in collagen-rich animal parts. These include connective tissue, bone marrow, and skin. Oh my God, do I love bone marrow. Oh, easily one of my favorite foods. I never, ever have it. I need to actually learn how to make it. It is so, so good. It is something that's not very popular in Canada, I feel like. In South Africa, where I'm originally from, it is very popular to order bone marrow at a restaurant, but I don't see it here a lot, but it is so, so good. So I actually, I've never tried to make it. So I should try to do that because mm, it's so healthy for you. So you really want to be including different parts, obviously, than just the muscle tissues of animals. So like I said, includes connective tissue, bone marrow, and skin. Some connective tissue containing glycine can also be found in minced meat. The harmfulness of methionine may well be related to the lack of glycine in our diets. And so, you know, the general consensus with this is like, Instead of eating a chicken breast that doesn't have any bones in it or skin on it, it's healthier to eat the chicken breast with the skin on it because that skin is giving you more amino acids and you're getting more of a balanced animal protein instead of just this muscle meat that doesn't have all of the right amounts in it. A good tip for this, I was actually just thinking about this this morning, is like when you go to order, for example, like pho or pho, which is like a Vietnamese, I mean, if you if you do eat this, is like a Vietnamese broth, essentially. And it has like a bunch of veggies in it. And it's really good, especially if you start to feel sick and you don't have the capability to make your own bone broth at home. This is like what I order. And I always choose the meat for it that is has the most diverse types of meat. And it will include like connective tissue, ligaments, and it lists all the different parts of the cow that are included in it. Because I know that 
if I'm starting to feel sick and I'm choosing to have this dish, those amino acids are going to be so healthy for me and for me to feel better. And in terms of supporting like collagen function and everything like that. So if you are going to make your own bone broth at home, you want to make it with a diverse set of meat or bones for these very same reasons. I'm just talking about Vietnamese food because I I want to have some tonight. So it's like top of mind for me. Okay. So what do we want to favor and what do we want to avoid? When eating meat, favor the following. Eat a wide variety of animal parts, including bones, bone marrow, tongue, connective tissue, and offal, such as liver and heart. This is tricky. I have tried many times to eat organ meat, and I've struggled with it, but it is so nutrient-dense for you. It's so nutrient-dense. Ugh. And we as a society have really moved away from eating organs in general. So. A couple of hacks that are just coming to mind. One, you can buy liver at Whole Foods. Typically, you can even get grass-fed or organic. And it's so cheap because literally no one buys it. It's so, so cheap to buy liver at Whole Foods. And you can grind it up into minced meat and then make burgers out of it or meatballs or anything like that at home so that you're getting that liver in there without sitting and eating like liver pate or something that you might not like the taste of. I really recommend this if you're easing into organ food or organ meats. This is also really great for kids. And it's definitely going to have to be something I figure out when I have kids because we're all going to be eating organ meat at that point because of you know the nutrients that we need from it. So that is something that I would look into And again, like I said, if you're making broth, if you're ordering something with broth, get a diversity of animal parts in there. So eat various types of animals. Again, a healthy diet is a diverse diet. So favor grass-fed animals, game, and indigenous breeds. So think of like the different type of cattle that you can have, bison, sheep, hunt your own meat or arrange for a direct connection to the origin of the meat. I am not a hunter. I will never be a hunter and it's not not something that I will ever explore. However, I would definitely support a local butcher hunter situation. Avoid intensively farmed meat, sausages, and cold cuts. Favor long cooking times at low temperatures like slow cooking and boiling and avoid high temperatures, frying, grilling, and deep frying. Deep frying is just a no-go. I think we're past that. And, you know, when consuming meats, add spices that support digestion and absorption, such as herbs, peppers, ginger, and turmeric, and foods that support absorption, such as pineapple, papaya, and sauerkraut. Oh, sauerkraut with meat? Mm, 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 So good. So, so good. I love sauerkraut. Sauerkraut is filled with healthy bacteria. It is a fermented food. And if you don't have a jar always of sauerkraut in your fridge, you should do that. Get on that. You can actually make your own sauerkraut. It's just cabbage. It's just a fermented cabbage. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Let's talk about fish. So according to general dietary guidelines, fish is recommended for nutrition and should be consumed at least twice per week. Fish is rich in healthy fatty acids, trace elements, vitamins, and amino acids. Numerous studies have indicated that fish is an excellent source of omega-3 fatty acids and vitamin D. 
The consumption of fish is associated with a lower risk of cardiovascular diseases. I think we, I think we knew kind of all of that. Obviously, there are some things we want to be concerned about now with our oceans and our fish quality that we're kind of seeing. Environmental toxins such as dioxins and PCBs are concentrated in fish fat. The fattier the fish, the higher level of toxins. The highest levels of mercury can generally be found in sharks, swordfish, and big eye tuna. Toxins become concentrated in long-lived and large predatory fish. That is always something I keep in mind. So the larger the fish, the more amount of toxins in them. The smaller the fish, the less amount, the less amount of mercury that you have to worry about. So you could compare something like sardines to salmon to tuna. And obviously the healthiest out of those three is the sardines because they are the smallest. And, you know, we are going to talk about farming in a second, but I, I do eat a lot of tuna, but it's just, or I do eat a lot of salmon, but I very rarely eat tuna now because I just know of the contamination issues that we're facing. Okay. What do we want to favor for fish? So here are some like principles that you can kind of follow. Eat the whole fish. So a lot of people don't do and use the nutritionally valuable guts for fish stock. Eat various types of fish that contain few chemicals and heavy metals. Favor wild fish and supplement your diet with organically farmed fish. That can be difficult to find. Catch your own fish or arrange for a direct connection to the origin of the fish. Avoid intensely farmed fish processed fish products in deep fried fish products. So no fish fingers (laughs) or ideally not. Favor long cooking times again at low temperatures like slow cooking and boiling. Avoid high temperatures, frying, grilling, deep frying. And when consuming fish, add spices that support it. And you can also alleviate any impact of the heavy metals by adding things like seaweed, chlorella, or coriander. You could also add charcoal as a supplement as well afterwards. The health impact of wild fish compared to farm fish is like pretty interesting. So wild fish has a higher level of omega-3 and more trace elements and vitamins. Wild fish contains fewer poor quality fat compounds. Antibiotics, hormones, PCB, neurotoxins, pesticides, and other toxins have been found in farmed fish. And wild fish may contain more mercury than farmed fish. So I don't know. It's kind of like, yeah, up in the air. So just quickly, the for mercury, if you're curious, like what are the highest is, so we'll go from high to low. Like we talked about, big eye tuna is what you want to avoid. Same with swordfish is very high in mercury. Safety in the high range, you know, about one or two times a month is pike, yellowfin tuna, or tuna canned. I kind of avoid all tuna, to be honest. Moderate, which is like safe to eat approximately once per week, is lobster, perch, Atlantic salmon, sea bass, monkfish, Atlantic halibut, and yep. And then the lowest ones that you can eat multiple times per week are things like flounder, shrimp, salmon farmed, common sole, octopus, squid, crayfish, and crab, sardines, whitefish, herring, mussels, clams, oysters, trout, and cod. So a lot of the whitefish are much, much lower in mercury. It's also, you know, we do want to talk about crustaceans and mollusks. (laughs) 
just briefly because I know a lot of people love these. So there are different types that you can have. I mean, oysters are by far the most nutrient rich of the mollusks. Oysters contain the most zinc in proportion to their weight. For instance, four medium-sized oysters provide 33 milligrams of zinc. That's a lot. An enormous amount of selenium, vitamins of the B complex, vitamin E, copper, as well as proteins and omega-3 acids. So oysters are very, very healthy for you. Other nutritious species include clams, mussels, lobsters, and snails. It should be noted, though, that the ever-popular shrimp are nutritionally lacking compared to other crustaceans and may contain harmful bacteria and traces of medicine due to intensive farming. So we want to favor oysters, clams, mussels, scallops, lobster, cray and crayfish, snails, cuttlefish, and you want to avoid shrimp. Kind of makes sense because shrimp's kind of everywhere now. All right, let's talk about eggs. <laughs> eggs are, I love eggs. I eat a lot of eggs. You know, eggs are, eggs, eggs, I feel like I've had a bad rap, but like they're kind of coming back, you know? Egg is basically a perfect food. So eggs are rich in protein, vitamins, minerals, and other beneficial nutrients, including phospholipids, lutein, zeanthin, and choline. Eggs are a good source of xanthophils, which are essential to eye health, especially for older people. They increase the carnitoid levels of blood serum as well as eye tissue. They have like multiple, multiple benefits of this. Many people continue to avoid the regular consumption of eggs, even though the link to increased risk of coronary artery disease has been refuted in all recent studies and meta-analyses. So there was that whole thing that was like, cholesterol, watch your cholesterol. Eggs are going to make this impact on that and going to impact your coronary arteries. And it's just like, no. (laughs) The latest research has very much disproved any of that. Studies conducted have found no no evidence of a link between egg consumption and high cholesterol levels. When I had to explain that to my dad, it was rough. It was rough. It's too simplistic to think that something as complicated as cholesterol can spike because of a simple food like eggs. Cholesterol is not a vitamin. It is not a mineral. It, it, you, you can't just increase the result like that. It's, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's just so funny. Eggs do not increase the risk of cardiovascular disease or stroke even when consumed daily. So if eggs are not a part of your daily meal right now, they definitely should be. However, we know that eggs are not suitable for everyone. Some people are allergic to eggs. Some suffer from heredity dysfunctions in fatty acid metabolism. And some people have a certain genetic variance, which may might cause dysregulation of cholesterol metabolism. That's some people. And also you should know if you have that and then understand that you can't have eggs because of that. So it's like a very small amount of people. There is a more realistic risk of developing a hypersensitivity to egg proteins as a result of regular egg consumption. Due to this, everyone who consumes eggs should take regular breaks in egg consumption. I have seen this actually. So when I've done my food sensitivity testing, I did it a while ago, a few years ago. I remember I think eggs came back the one time I did it. And just like any type of protein, you can take a break from it 
if it is showing up as something you're sensitive to and then swing back to it in three to six months when you are, when you've taken a break and you're more primed to be able to digest it properly. Okay. So when selecting eggs, what type of eggs do you want to select? My gosh, the amount of eggs in the stores these days are just insane. The amount of greenwashing, the fake labeling, it's so confusing for the average person or even for someone like myself who understands nutrition. And then they put like the picture of the red barn farm on there and the sun shining and the little hens in the grass. And you're like, oh yeah, this one must be so healthy. And it's just like, no, it's not. It's really not. So what can we actually look for? A really good way to know if your eggs are healthy is if you put your fresh eggs and they sink in water, then they're healthy. Old eggs will float. So it's always something that I play around with. The egg whites of fresh eggs are firmer and the whites of older eggs are more watery. The more vivid yellow the yolk is, the more it contains fat-soluble vitamins and carnitoids. However, I have heard that farmers have caught on to people understanding how orange the yolk should be. And now they feed their chickens a certain flower, it might be like marigolds or calendula to help change the pigment of those yolks, even though it's not a reflection of an actual full change in their diet. Like they're not suddenly organic or pastured eggs. It's just that they added added this one flower in and now it's changing the color of their yolks. So be aware, be aware. Favor organic free range slash pastured yolks. So there's a difference between free run and free range. And also there are a difference in these labels in different countries. Canada is different than the US and it's also different in other places as well. So learn what it is in your location, please, because this might not pertain specifically to you. Studies have found these eggs to have significantly higher levels of good fatty acids and fat-soluble vitamins and carnitoids. Avoid indoor eggs, including cage-free eggs, that's total BS, and caged eggs. Caged, Caged eggs carry an increased risk of salmonella. Note the packaging date if you buy eggs from a supermarket and vary the type of eggs that you eat, again, so that you're getting different proteins and different amino acids. For example, there's not just chicken eggs, right? There's quail, duck, and goose. Quail eggs are really, really great in salads. I love adding those in the summer and they're super easy to cook as well. Eggs should be prepared in a way that maintains the flavor and nutrient density as well as possible. So there's some help, like helpful tips that can kind of go with this, but the main egg white protein consisting of albium contains enzyme inhibitors when raw. Because of this, the egg white should always be cooked. Avoid eating just the egg white. So (laughs) when I see people buying the containers of egg whites that they like add to their smoothie or like, so if they have it raw, which is really not great, or if they, my older brother does this, if they have like two eggs and then they add extra egg whites to that dish that has those two eggs in it, it is still not that great for you because of this very reason of this albium in there. Now, when you eat a whole egg with the egg white and the egg yolk in it, 
The different nutrients in the egg yolk actually help balance out that LBM in the egg white so you don't have to worry about it. But when you are over consuming egg whites, then it is definitely cause for concern. So this albium interferes with iron absorption, which is really, really important, especially for women. And it can also hinder the absorption of vitamin B, the different vitamin Bs. The yolk should be eaten raw or slightly cooked. Frying or boiling oxidizes fats, denatures proteins, and destroys one half of the precious xenophils of the egg. So what I typically do is I will do sunny side up eggs and it'll be cooked in like butter or avocado oil. And then if I go out or if I, you know, get them somewhere else, I'll do poached eggs and I will do it, them runny. So the, I always try to make sure the yellow is as raw and runny as possible so that I can get the most benefit from it. Keep eggs in room temperature and use with seven to 10 days. Refrigerated eggs will, you know, it's 30 to 45 days. It depends on the eggs you buy for this. Do not eat eggs that are old, have a broken shell or a watery egg. All right, let's talk about milk products. So excessive milk consumption obviously can stimulate mucus production. So you have to be careful about that. And this peptide that is associated with that can also stimulate and worsen the symptoms of asthma for different people. For some individuals, giving up milk entirely may help in the recovery from chronic sinus infections. There's a lot to be said about this in terms of how it kind of triggers the inflammation cycle and also mucus producing pathways in the body. It is commonly believed that milk is a good source of calcium. Oh my gosh, we see this in the ads and advertising everywhere. However, care should be taken with liberal milk consumption and particularly when using calcium supplements as recent studies have indicated that these are associated with the development of coronary artery disease and a significant increase in the risk of heart attack. High calcium intake causes magnesium deficiency. Several studies have indicated that magnesium is one of the main factors in the prevention of coronary artery disease. A calcium-magnesium imbalance significantly increases the risk of heart attack and may increase the risk of breast cancer in postmenopausal women as well. So we really just want to be cautious about how much dairy we are consuming. And then obviously the quality is so important here. So the quality qualities of milk products vary depending on the cattle breed of origin. Often the terms A1 milk and A2 milk are used. The distinction is made according to differences in milk proteins between cattle breeds. A2 milk produced by indigenous cattle breeds cause significantly fewer health problems. It's been interesting since I've learned this. I learned this like, like during my nutrition degree was we were talking about this. And now I actually see marketed in the supermarkets like A2 milk to buy. And it's much more common now than it was, you know, five years ago. We really want to be again, like talking about the quality here, it's not just between A1 and A2 and where the cows come from. It is what their behavior is like. So the diet and living conditions of the cow also have an enormous impact on the quality of the resulting milk products. For example, the milk of grass-fed cows contains significantly more omega-3 fatty acids. In addition, the proportion of grass in the cattle diet is directly proportional to the nutritional value of the butter produced. 
Organic milk products also contain more omega-3 fatty acids and CLA compared to conventional milk products. So all in all, what is this to say about what you should favor? Favor, you want to favor milk products made from the milk of goats, sheep, Scottish Highland, Lamosin, I don't know how to pronounce these, or other indigenous breeds of dairy cattle. You can do things like fermented milk products like kefir. I love kefir. You want to favor grass-fed and organic butter and raw milk from small farms. If you can get raw milk, raw milk is illegal in Canada, which is horse shit. (laughs) And I've been able to find it before. If you are in Canada and you're looking for raw milk, the best way for you to do this is to go to Facebook. There are Facebook groups about how to connect with farmers and you will likely be connected with a middle person. You go meet up with the middle person, you bring the cash, they bring the milk and you do a little swap. That's what I did. And you very likely won't meet the farmer, know where the farmer comes from because it is illegal and which is very stupid. So there is a way around it though, if you want, if you want to do it. I, what do I have? I don't drink milk from any type of animal right now. I've completely taken a break from raw milk for the last year, maybe. And I will have goat yogurt, goat cheese, sheep cheese, and I will have grass-fed organic cow yogurt as well. And that's it. Oh, and then butter. And then, so I actually do goat butter. I don't, I don't do cow butter at all. Avoid highly processed milk and fat-free milk products. Processed milk products such as milk-based drinks, you know, like chocolate milk, stuff like that. Yogurts sweetened with sugar and digestive yogurts, which we already talked about. Okay, next we need to talk about grains or cereals, because this is such a hot topic always, especially with so many people being gluten-free and really caring about it. So the global consumption of grains is mainly divided into three different grains. I wonder if you could guess what they are. Obviously, wheat, which is mostly Europe, Middle East, North Africa, and Australia. Then we have corn, which is North and South America. Southern Africa, and rice, which is Asia. The global per capita wheat consumption is around 67 kilograms. 70% of the cereals eaten are refined. Geez, that's a lot. Refining significantly undermines the nutritional value of cereals. Vitamin B complex, zinc, magnesium, phytoestrogens, and selenium are removed with the husk. Consuming whole grains has been linked to better health by many, many different studies. The health benefit is likely to be due to the overall better living habits of people who consume whole grain cereals, as well as the reduced consumption of processed cereals rather than the increased consumption of whole grain cereals. See, that's where they get you with research studies. They say it's like based off of someone eating more of this whole grain cereal. But honestly, like this says, is it related to the changes in lifestyle or the lack of the presence of the processed cereal. For instance, whole grain cereals by themselves do not lower the levels of inflammatory markers or improve insulin sensitivity. More so than cereals, there is significantly more positive evidence for the consumption of vegetables preventing many illnesses, which is not surprising. 
Let's talk about gluten. So gluten is a large scale protein molecule that consists of numerous peptides. At least 50 of these have been found to destroy epithelial cells in the intestine, disrupt the immune function and cause leaky gut syndrome. So that's basically like the lining of your, your gut. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot to be said about gluten. I don't want to go too heavy in the weeds with it, but Gluten in general, like gluten hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity is very common now. So gluten hypersensitivity is many times more common in humans than celiac disease. Testing for celiac disease with laboratory tests does not rule out gluten hypersensitivity as the latter cannot currently be reliably tested in a laboratory. So there's different ways that you can test. I mean, again, there's so much you can look up online for this if you really, if you really want to look into it. But Let's talk about like what are the recommendations in terms of grains and cereals. So instead of only eating those, I recommend relying on vegetables and roots, root crops for dietary carbohydrate needs and adding gluten-free products such as oat, quinoa, and buckwheat as needed. If you can tolerate them, there's like a little star there always. Favor indigenous varieties of cereals over highly processed ones. For example, indigenous wheat varieties alleviate the inflammation and symptoms of IBS patients, whereas modern wheat varieties worsen them. Obviously, one of the biggest issues with wheat and grains in general is like how processed they are. And we really, really see this when we're looking at things like inflammation and people having gut health issues like IBS. What do you want to favor? You want to favor things like amaranth, millet, oat, quinoa, buckwheat, and teff. You want to avoid wheat and other wheat varieties that contain gluten, which are spelt and um, emmer wheat, barley, rye, and maize. Maize is another word for corn. Rice. Rice is a type of grass. According to some estimates, more than 90% of the world's rice is grown in Asia. Rice is one of the main sources of nutrition for up to one half of the world's population, which is wild. Rice is typically categorized into long, medium, and short grain varieties. Long grain varieties are rich in amylose, short chain, and some long grain rice varieties are rich in amylopectin, for example, in Thai sticky rice. Due to the function of digestive enzymes, and amylopectin may raise the blood sugar level more rapidly than amylose. Whole grain rice is more nutrient-dense than white rice. However, and Dr. Stephen Gundry talks a lot about this, it contains anti-nutrients that interfere with nutrient absorption. And, you know, anti-nutrients could be a whole podcast in itself, as well as other toxins such as soil-based arsenic. The nutritional value of whole grain rice decreases significantly upon cooking. White rice varieties such as basmati and jasmine rice are less nutrient-dense, or sorry, are less nutrient-rich than whole grain rice. However, they do not contain anti-nutrients. So white rice mainly consists of starch, some protein, and certain trace elements. To remove impurities, rice should always be properly soaked. And there's different ways that you can you can do that. So what do you want to favor? You want to favor basmati rice, jasmine rice, other types of long grain rice, and organic black rice. And you want to avoid instant rice, porridge rice, short short grain rice, whole grain rice, and brown rice. 
So if you're ordering sushi, I don't know if you see this a lot now, there's like options to like, for an extra dollar, substitute for brown rice. Don't do that. Just save your money and save your health and stick with the white rice. Okay, let's talk about maize. So maize, like I said, is corn and it, it, it is a member of the grass family. It is an old staple crop with an estimated cultivation history dating as far back as 9,000 years ago in Mexico. Today, maize is the most widely grown grain in the world, which is actually kind of surprising. As much as 40% of all maize is produced in the United States, of which up to 86% is genetically manipulated. Oof. In 2011, 32% of the maize produced in the world was genetically manipulated. Wow. So it's just like obviously increasing. And obviously it's like very intensive farming. For human consumption, maize is traditionally used in tortillas, porridge, polenta, popcorn, and cornflakes. Mexican cuisine in particular holds maize in a key role. There's obviously different types of maize like we and like corn like we talked about. But we really just want to be careful of the types that we're having, especially if you want to talk about corn syrup, which we briefly did. So Maize is frequently turned into high fructose corn syrup, which is used as a sweetener in many foods and drinks. The abundant use of high fructose corn syrup has been linked to the occurrence of diabetes in various countries. I remember having that in my kitchen when I was growing up was corn syrup. (laughs) And it is also a predisposing factor for excessive weight, metabolic syndrome, and the onset of fatty liver disease. Yeah. If you, yeah. Please don't have corn syrup in your kitchen and just be aware of it so that you can avoid it when you are, you know, looking at the back of the ingredients of of certain products that you're going to eat. Okay. Last but not least, I have going to, I'm going to talk about root vegetables and tubers. I've actually decided I'm going to cut this podcast into two, two different parts because this is such a dense topic and I don't want you to be overwhelmed. So part two, we'll talk more about vegetables, fruit, coffee, tea, alcohol, a bunch of other things. And so we're going to end it after this root vegetables, and then we'll go from there. So root vegetables, I love root vegetables. I eat quite a lot of them. These refer to the underground parts of a plant that are used for food. Root vegetables include the roots, shoots, and bulbs of many seed plants. Root vegetables are very common all over the world. There are more than 50 types of storage roots, which are categorized in bulbs, rhizomes, and tubers. And the most common ones, you could probably name them, are carrots, beetroot, cassava, rutabaga, turnips, yams, sweet potatoes, reddish, and celery. Root vegetables are nutritionally valuable due to the fiber, vitamin C, vitamin B complex, and calcium contained by them. Carrots contain particularly high levels of beta-carotene and other carnitoids. Let's talk about potatoes. The potato was slowly adopted into Europe in as late as the 19th century, but it soon after became an important staple food. Potatoes at the time were used to prevent scurvy because of their high vitamin C content. Contrary to common belief, the potato is not a root vegetable. It is a nightshade vegetable. Other similar nightshades are eggplants, tomatoes, and peppers. Potatoes are fairly rich in nutrients and like potassium, vitamin B complex, and vitamin C. 
The potato is also one of the prime foods to promote the feeling of satiety. Sweet potato, I love sweet potatoes. I probably have sweet potatoes like three or four times a week <laughs> or yams, but I, I, I do really like sweet potatoes. So the consumption of sweet potatoes increased in popularity after Christopher Columbus introduced it in Europe. Sweet potatoes are often used as a replacement for white potatoes. They are more nutrient-rich than the conventional potato. For instance, sweet potatoes contain more beta-carotene, and you can tell that by the orange color, just like carrots, vitamin C, and fiber. It also raises the blood sugar level more slowly compared to regular white potatoes. On the other hand, potatoes contain more resistant starch that may be helpful in the maintenance of the bacterial strain of the intestine. I recommend uh, potatoes and sweet potatoes be consumed, especially after strenuous exercise, to supplement, you know, depleted glycogen reserves in the muscles. So what do you want to favor here? You want to favor a wide variety of seasonal root vegetables. So you could do things like carrots, yams, sweet potatoes, parsnips. You could do organic potatoes, boiling and steaming potatoes, seasonally grown local potatoes, large-sized tubers, so-called almond potatoes are good as well. And you want to avoid potatoes deep-fried in oil, potato chips. I love potato chips. I literally cannot have them in the house because I will eat the whole bag, so I just do not buy them. Other heavily processed potato products, eating potato peels. I mean, this is because there's a lot of glycol Alloids that are present in potato skins. So as a result, peeling the potatoes significantly reduces that. And unpeeled potatoes fried in oil are especially, well, are especially problematic for, for that. So you kind of just want to be careful of the skins. I don't necessarily follow that, to be honest. Like, I'm just going to be real with you. I probably should. But when it comes to yams and sweet potatoes, I basically almost always leave the skin on. And you also want to avoid green and damaged potatoes and very small tubers. Okay, that is where I'm going to leave off for nutrition for today. Like I said, nutrition is such a massive topic. And to cover it in this amount of time is just a very ambitious thing to do. And I also really want you to be able to digest everything I said and take it with a grain of salt. <laughs> Two puns. Wow. And yeah, I, I want you to be able to come back with a fresh mind when I do part two. Part two, we're going to talk about berries. We're going to talk about fruit. We're going to talk about all of the other vegetables and some hot topics like alcohol and coffee. What should you be doing there? So you definitely don't want to miss out on that. Save this episode, download it, and I will put all of the links. Just I don't think there's a lot for this one, but I'll put all the links in the show notes for you to find any products that I mentioned. And I will catch you next week for part two of how to optimize your nutrition for the typical average person so that you can start being healthier today. Thanks for listening to another episode of Biohacking with Brittany. If you're interested in finding the show notes or the sponsors for this episode, you can do so on my website, which is biohackingbrittany.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram where I'm most active. My handle is at biohackingbrittany. And if you're interested in working together and you want to email me directly, you can do that. My email is info at biohackingbrittany.com. And I look forward to hearing from you and having you tune in next week.